Welcome to the Scale with Tech and AI Growth Lab podcast. I'm your host, Jay Farr at Tech Fusion Systems. Our guest is Chris Hodges, author of Noble Automation Now. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Jay, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Do you want to kick us off? Tell us a little bit about your book. What is Noble Automation Now? What, what's it all about? Sure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So Noble Automation Now, those three words obviously have a specific meaning. The intent of the title, the intent of the book, and what I do is to help organizations implement intelligent automation and AI in a way that doesn't terrify their employees, which unfortunately is a big problem. And as you can see in any number of places in the press, the technology is super exciting, but equal to the excitement is the terror that it brings. And so what I learned as the intelligent automation leader for in Northern Europe for Deloitte and Accenture is how important the implementation with people and leadership, et cetera, is in these tools or we will never achieve what they're capable of doing. And so what Noble Automation now is a codification of everything I learned doing that uh, with Deloitte and Accenture and with my individual clients today. That's a really interesting topic because I mean, you mentioned AI and of course, like we've had a lot of, of technology for a, for a while now. We're a fairly techno savvy civilization here in the first world. We have smartphones. We have a lot of SaaS software running in the cloud. We have it connect to other systems. We can automate triggers and all sorts of workflows. However, AI is a little new. It's here though, and people are using it. And there's, I think a lot that we don't understand about it. And you brought up a very important point of the implementation side of technology and how that not just changes the business in general, but how that affects the workforce and the individual employee and their perception of it, their fears and discomforts. And so it's interesting that we're already talking about that in what I would call the very early stages of AI adoption. And it's nice to see, and I'm glad that that conversation is being had and there's people like you out there who are talking about it and looking at ways to make right. that process better than what it otherwise would be. What kind of uh, examples could you give us where you have seen technology, whether it be AI or not, get implemented in a horrible way and what the effects were to the company and the workforce in the short term and the long term? And then another example of a company implementing technology in a very successful way where you know, the personnel and the technology worked well together and it was a big success. That's a great question. Both the, the yay and the boo or the good and the bad or whatever. <laughs> so let's start with the ugliest personal engagement I've ever been involved in. And this is it, back in Europe. And at the time, Northern Europe was, believe it or not, ahead of the United States in a lot of this intelligent autom automation implementation. And the reason for that is the Northern European labor market is so expensive that the companies had to move to automation. They couldn't go hire more people because they didn't have the money to hire more people. Anyway, very large telecommunications client who shall not be named had a very large outsourcing center. So thousands of people who did all of the central functions. It really, when I say outsourcing, it's really centralized functions of the company. And I met with the client and proposed a series of solutions of intelligent automation solutions and how to implement these intelligent automation solutions. Those included robotic process automation, both attended and unattended. And for the listeners, there's not a real robot in that. Robotic process automation is software. It's just a way to automate tasks on computers. Some voice recognition, some chat bots. It was a combination of things. 
And within the consulting company that I was working for, there was a struggle. And the struggle was they wanted to turn this deal, this consulting engagement into a huge engagement. So instead of an engagement that I was going to sell to the client and deliver in a very incremental way and build it up, the power shifted in the company and they wanted to make this gigantic project. The uh, I stepped out of the, I had identified this opportunity and got the sale and in consulting, that was what I was doing at that point is selling it. So the implementation team shows up at their centralized functional office and literally says to the managers in a foreign country, so in a country that they're not even from that culture, which just adds another problem to it, we're here to help you automate and eliminate half of your workforce. The That's people a they very said, interesting introduction. Hell of an intro, right? The people they said that to were directly rewarded by the number of people who reported to them. So now you've said, I'm going to cut your bonus in half. That's mm. how they heard it, right? Those are the words they heard it in. As someone, I used to be an implementation engineer, and boy, that is insane. That's crazy. And if I stopped talking right now and didn't tell you the rest of the story. It's already horrible. You already know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I want to hear, I want to hear the rest right. of it though. So that was when the consultants hit the beach, so to speak. That was how they pretty much phrased it. Then they started working with the individual team members and all of the team members, of course, all they could hear was, you're here to automate me out of my job. So every form of passive aggressive resistance comes up, every kind of excuse, every kind of this and that, yeah, every form of obfuscation you can come up with. When in reality, this company actually needed those people to do other things. Yeah. And they didn't say that. They went in with, we're going to automate your job and you're going to get fired, right? They didn't use the word fired either, but that's what the message that came across. In the end, and fortunately, I worked for two big consulting companies in Europe, both Accenture and Deloitte. So I can say, I didn't, I'm not going to say which one of these it was, right? The deal, the transaction with the client from a consulting point of view was a $20 million write-off in consulting fees. From the client's point of view, it was 18 months of wasted time. They didn't have to pay for it because they said you didn't deliver what you're supposed to deliver. Good luck um, collecting your money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was, again, I had stepped out when they, other people in the company had taken, wrestled control of this. And I literally sat down and said, and I even had gone to the very most senior partner in the organization at the time and said, this is going to blow up. Mm. And it did blow up. The client was angry. They threw the consulting company out. A $20 million write-off was made. A lot of broken eggs and a lot of tears shed over that. And it all could have been avoided. Yeah, that's horrific. That's just incompetent, I don't mind saying. What do you yeah. think, what's to blame? What and who is to blame? It sounds to me, and, and when I was on the engineering side of things a long time ago, I always noticed that usually the planning was never thorough enough. I always took more time planning the projects than anyone else, but my projects always went better. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it was strictly poor planning from all the way at the top on both the consultant side and the client side? Do you Here's have been right there. What I'll tell you, it absolutely wasn't. It wasn't through stupid people, right? All the people on both sides of this were very smart, motivated people. But if everyone is incentivized, and I really don't like that word incentivized, but I can't think of another way to say it. If the incentives for the individual people are in conflict. So one person is only incentivized to sell a deal, doesn't care about delivery. Another person is only rewarded by perfect delivery, no risk. They don't care about the sale and all the factors in between. And the managers and the client have different incentives. 
If you don't look at those incentives in advance, and I say this about Charlie Munger, the partner to uh, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, show me the incentive and I'll show you the action. I'll show you mm. what's going to take place. The incentives were completely misaligned. And back to your example of planning, I write this in the book and I always hate if I'm on a podcast and I keep saying my book, I don't mean to be plugging it. No, we want to hear about the book. My, I mean. my book itself actually captures 30 years of experience of doing this stuff. And one of the examples, like you just said, when the Japanese planned ship refurbishments in Japan, I was in the U.S. Navy in, in southern Japan for years. And when I was there, the, the Japanese would run a shipyard and then there'd be an American shipyard that did the same kind of work. And when a, the same ship came in, the Japanese would get the work done in uh, one third less time and at higher quality. And the, the big mystery was, what is it about the Japanese? Are they just working like crazy people? Are there more? They just work 18 hour days. Do they put more people? So they conducted the shipyard, conducted an experiment on this. And the J version of planning is the one that won out the longer planning. So what would happen is that the, the two ships came in, they were both destroyers, and they had to replace these very complicated gun mounts, which go like three floors down into the deck of a ship, all kinds of moving parts and machinery, et cetera. So they gave the two gun mounts, one to the American crew and one to the Japanese crew. The Japanese crew went into a conference room and didn't come out for three weeks. Yeah. And everyone said, oh, this experiment's over. The Japanese don't know what to do. No, and they the American exactly crew, what to do. Exactly. <laughs> so the American crew jumped on the ship and did what Americans, what we do, right? It mm. got busy, started turning wrenches, pulling things apart. They knew the race was on, right? Of course, what ended up happening is the Japanese very carefully laid out who was going to do what, in what order, and what were the complications. Mm. So when they finally came out of the conference room, guess who did a better job? Yeah. Now, no, it's a not, fantastic uh, case study. And, and for anyone who doesn't know what, what you're talking about, when you say guns, these are cannons the size of several houses. Yes. They're not little <laughs> guns. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Yeah. I, I guess I should have explained that, but you sounds like you knew it. But yeah, yeah, think of like the battleships, the guns on the front of the battleships mm. in the Midway or Pearl Harbor. Actually, there weren't any battleships in Midway, just Pearl Harbor. So anyway, back to the, the planning piece. You ask for a bad example and a good example. So that's a bad example. Now, the conflicting areas were almost all people, leadership, incentives, ego gets involved. Somebody thinks they can do it better than somebody else without talking about it and walking through it. That's what led to all that. A confrontational negotiation style between the client and the consulting firm. All of that stuff led to a huge, ugly black eye. Now, give you another example. This is a positive example. So still in Europe. Now we'll talk about Stockholm, Sweden. I'm still involved in this one but I have control of this one. <laughs> Thank goodness. So I'm able to meet with a, a young head of operations, the CEO of the company. It's a financial services business. They have huge problems. They're out being out-innovated, out-optimized. Their productivity is low compared to the other companies in their market space. And we worked very systematically to walk through what I then turned into, I codify, I figured, what did we actually do? Oh, you went through, through these seven things, right? We got the leadership aligned. They understand the tech. We could focus on value creation and not just doing crazy things because it's like, let's use technology because it's cool. That's what's going on with AI right now. How do you empower the team and not scare them? How do you find out which of these people, and this is what we had to do, which of the people in the organization are going to stay doing exactly what they're doing? Which of the people might very well leave? And how do you handle how they're going to leave? How do you treat them in the most noble, 
human way so that it's okay. They're going on another journey somewhere else. That's a different story. And then what about the people in the company whose jobs are going to change? And every one of those people needs to know that, or you'll never get the full engagement out of who they were. Right. The, the last... and, and you need the support of these people in the, in, within uh, the process too. Totally. I mean, that's another thing to for upper management to think about. You can't just like knock people out of the way and throw in some tech and be like, okay, let's get back to work. Absolutely, a, Jake. A lot of training and changes. Uh, Jake, this is why I titled the book Noble Automation, right? And the reason I said that is in the 18, 1700s, noblesse oblige was the term for how rulers were to treat their subordinates. To, to demonstrate a kind of nobility toward them, to respect the farmers, the peasants, the, the merchants, whoever underneath them, underneath the queen. And you might say, oh, is this some sort of altruistic? No, it's called, that's how you don't get your head cut off. If you treat right. the people in your kingdom in a way that they think is reasonably fair, you don't get your head cut off. And right. what happens in business <laughs> is if you don't treat people fairly, they just walk out the door. Yeah. They quit or or worse, they sit at their desk, burn your salary and do nothing <laughs> and make Instagram posts. Right. So, <laughs> right. And so the example in this case, all this intelligent automation technology gets implemented, a suite of RPA tools across this financial services business. They got a 300% ROI. They didn't have a big turmoil, a bunch of turmoil stirred up with the employees. Some employees left, but most just morphed into different jobs. The company grew. They innovated faster. It was a huge success. And the last, I say this, I give this keynote and I use this, this story at the end. The last time I saw the guy who did this operations guy who ran it, who was my direct client, his, his boss was the CEO, right? But Or his two bosses up. He was on a stage presenting this case study to all these people in Northern Europe. And I'm, I'm the consultant sitting in the chair watching and very proudly watching him glow. Right. Swedes don't glow very much, but this Swede was glowing. <laughs> and there he was talking about all this success that his company had. And there was no derailment. And the consulting firm made its fees and did just fine. And the financial services business did just fine. And the people felt great about it. So again, it, it's not for lack of smart people. It's for lack of people who think it through and say, how can we do this in a way that, that can be really successful? And, mm -hmm. and it is definitely doable, but you're going to see a lot of mistakes between now and then. Yeah, that's a great case study. And I think that is some of the fear and pushback towards technology, too, is people do have that fear is what if it doesn't go well, right? And I always say that's in the planning stages. We're not, when we have a discussion about automation, we have a discussion about implementing technology, we're not chiseling it in granite, okay? It's just a discussion, we're entertaining it, we're coming up with potential problems and, and potential roadblocks we might run into and we're deciding how we're gonna deal with them if that time comes. And so I think that's, those are two great case studies because it can go really well almost all the time. Right. If it, the planning is done properly, right. Uh, there's really no excuse for a disaster like scenario one. There really oh, is. No, you're absolutely right. I, I wanted to throw in there's a dimension here, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. When a company is doing this, they usually are working through a consulting company, a technology implementation team, and then their core technology team, part of their own company. Right. So there's a bunch of different people involved in this. You have to get all those incentives aligned as well. I mm -hmm. recently was involved with a client where, and I was a third party on this, where the consulting company had no incentive to finish the project fast. So guess what happened? 
the consulting company had every bit of an incentive to drag the project on. So even though they could see the struggles that the leadership team was having, and even though they had some good ideas of how to fix those things, they said, not our responsibility to fix that because they knew they were going to milk this client for fees. So I, I had to intervene on that point. Yeah, I'm um, glad you brought up incentives. That's something that's not talked about almost ever. I almost never hear, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone of note who has a lot of experience in the technology and implementation and innovation space talk about aligning incentives. It's been talked about before, but not very often. I don't hear it much. And it's interesting you say that because I've experienced that too in various different projects when I was back in corporate America doing that sort of thing. If incentives aren't aligned, you'll have teams just completely ambush the project, right? Because oh, yeah. it's against what is in their best interest in nature, right? And so that's another thing that has to be thought of. I keep talking about planning from a technical perspective, which is of course very important, but you brought up the other thing, making sure the incentives are aligned and if they're not, how to deal with that. And that's probably should be the first thing even. That is what Warren, Charlie Munger would say of Berkshire Hathaway. I think he's absolutely right. So there's, if I can take you down a slightly, what I discovered in this process and what I have brought that I think is new to this approach there was a mythology expert who died not too long ago named Joseph Campbell, and he is famous. Joseph Campbell is famous for creating what he called the hero's journey. And you may have heard the hero's journey in movies or books. And what Joseph Campbell realized studying mythology all over the world, that we in all of these different cultures have our myths all sound the same. Why do our myths all sound like Star Wars? Why do our myths all sound like the Matrix or Harry Potter? And so what, what do I mean by that? The incentive, which is how we got to this subject, the incentive in the hero's journey is for the hero to win a prize, get the gold, maybe just become a transcendent better person than they were before. And what happens to the hero? The hero hears a call to adventure. In the world of automation and AI, that call to adventure is we're going to implement this new technology you don't know anything about, right? That's your call to adventure. And you can answer that call by either saying, I'm going to embrace this. It's going to be challenging. I'm going to have to overcome things. I'm going to have to break out of the old and go into the different phases that you go from being in the existing world through initiation. So think of Luke Skywalker learns what the lightsaber is. Then as he's fighting through and learning these various techniques, he has to fight the deep, dark dragon, which is, of course, Darth Vader. And then after he conquers Darth Vader, he comes to come back to the tribe of people and brings forth a transcendent person. The incentive, and this is what is so important, I think, about the hero's journey for people at work. You don't know what someone else's incentive is until you find out. You have to ask them, what really motivates you, Jay? Do you want to learn a sexy new technology and be the hottest coder you've ever met? Or do you want more money? Do you want to be recognized as whatever, right? Do you want to lead your first team in a company? And by the way, what's keeping you from doing that? Maybe fear, which is what the hero's journey is all about, is overcoming this fear. So what I now do with clients is I say to them, look, let's try to figure out how these people who you value so much, what is the hero's journey they could be on? How could they see this whole challenge? as a way to transcend their former self. Maybe again, maybe it's more money. Maybe it's a better job. Maybe it's just feeling better about their skills and their techniques. Maybe it's getting out of the routine, the horrible job they've been doing up to now. So back to your point, I think incentives are absolutely essential. 
but don't assume you know what the incentives of people are. Yeah. And right? it's funny you say that because I learned that kind of the hard way like a long time ago because I used to do a different kind of consulting, kind of brick and mortar business consulting. And I always assumed the business owner wanted more money. And I ended up talking to a lot of older business of small business owners right. who were like lifestyle business owners. And a nice gentleman who ended up becoming a client said, why do you assume I want more money? And I said, I don't know. What do you want? And right. he said, I just don't want to spend so much time at work putting out fires all the time. And that was a really interesting life lesson that luckily right. happened early on. And so from that, I understood not everybody has the same motivations. And so that's very funny that you bring that up. And you were lucky to have had that happen. <laughs> yeah, right? he just, we just didn't want to spend so many hours at work anymore, but he wanted to make the same money. And I said, oh, okay, we can do that too. <laughs> you know? That's a whole different was, scope of work. <laughs> I was selling the wrong thing. So yeah, that's very interesting to ask. Yeah, that's a great point. What do you mean by intelligent automation? Like how do you define intelligent automation and not intelligent automation? That, that's a great question. We are now delving into the world of where people start putting names on things and then they don't really know what they're talking about. Artificial intelligence is a great right. example of that. It doesn't exist yet. Yeah, that is if you say general intelligence does not exist, right? But the you know, machine learning definitely exists. Mm -hmm. I think intelligent automation, the way I define it, and you could go out to Google and type that in and you probably get some mushy answers. Intelligent automation as I define it as automation that can not just follow basic routines, but maybe can start to do some interpretation and some estimating of what directions you should or want to go. If you want to just automate something, when email comes in from Jay, take Jay's name, stick in database, send Jay, thank you note, and a little pony. Not that you a want a little of pony. Flowers, yeah, a bouquet of flowers to thank Jay for, for his time. Yeah. Intelligent automation, as we move forward, starts to, to say, what do we think this could be? So let me give you an example that I, I really enjoyed seeing and enjoyed the outcome of. In this case, the client is a customer service. They're running a customer service office at a telecoms company. So they don't make the equipment. They run a cell. I think of T-Mobile or AT&T or whatever, it, European version of that. What this person desperately needed, this client desperately needed, was their customer service agents not to be on the phone for 20 minutes for every person's call when they called them. And they wanted to be able to help predict why the customer would be calling. So the solution they used, and this isn't, we're going to go off on technology, but an assisted form of robotic process automation. And this is what would happen. The phone would ring based on the number coming in. The robot in the background is going through all of the transactions of the client in the last 60 days. And then it's comparing all those transactions to transactions in the previous four months. And it's basically looking for what is unusual about this client. Why could they possibly be calling in? You don't really know, but why could they be calling in? And so here's an example. The phone number comes in. The robot, while the agent is saying, Hi, Jay. I'm so happy that you called me here at the customer service desk. The robot is going through all those records, right? And it says, hey, there's a 200 euro charge when this person was using their cell phone in Italy. And it pops up on the screen, $200 charge, cell phone in Italy, downloaded a movie, right? The robot doesn't know that's why they're calling, but it looks unusual. And so what does the agent say? So what can I do for you, Jay? I want to talk to you about my bill. I see there's some unusual activity here in Italy, right? So it, it's the robot 
enabling, in this case, the software robot, enabling the human to be that more, much more human, to help right. them predict. So that's an example. of. And I like the way you, you explain that. And, and I've been talking about this recently too. And so some of the things I, I talk about in automation is we should not try to automate everything. Some things shouldn't be automated, right? No. And technology should be leveraged to help us do our jobs better and more efficiently and to deliver more value to the marketplace and the customers. And it's interesting that you explain that and use that as an example of technology assisting the human element in a way that makes the, the call center uh, person's job more enjoyable because they have the tools at their disposal to make the customer happier, the customers exactly. happier, there's less time spent, it's more profitable, et cetera. Everybody so, wins. Can we go back to this automate everything? I wanted to share a story, one more story with you. Yeah, you sure. might go in there? Yeah, sure. So, I use this example in the book, and it's, again, the difference in approach and technologies. In the 1980s, which even I was too young in the 1980s to, to be going through this, but in the 1980s, the Japanese car industry, this is a second example of Japan, but I did spend a lot of time in Japan, so maybe that's why the stories are coming up. The, the Japanese car companies started to do much better than American car companies, making much higher quality cars. And through a lot of pressure on government, the Japanese agreed to let engineers from the top three American companies go over and look at the Japanese factories. And they were surprisingly open about it. And the, the big three engineering, a big three companies came over and said, it's robots. The Japanese have got all kinds of robots. They're killing us with robots. So we're going to go back and we're going to put all kinds of robots in our factory. Right? I already know. You know where this bit. goes, right? I, I know a little bit of this story, uh, but not the whole story. So I'm interested. I've always been fascinated with Japan and they've always been incredible. They're incredible engineers. And so I'm, yeah, I want to hear the rest of this. And they are, Japan has its challenges as well. They're great at improving on things, but they tend not to have been the ones who invented them. So it's an interesting balance of what they do. So what did General Motors do? They built the most automated car factory in the world in Fremont, California. And it had more robots than had ever been put into a factory ever. They could never get the robots to work. The factory consist consistently lost money. They couldn't under. By the way, this is where Elon Musk builds his cars now in that part of California, <laughs> and he's learned his lesson. And <laughs> so, what did they do wrong? What the Japanese figured out, and the term is autonomation, and this is the term we need to use for AI, for intelligent automation, for software automation. Autonomation means automate what makes sense to automate, and leave to the human what makes sense for the human to do and try not to make a mistake on those things. In other words, don't fall in love with technology. Look at, Jay is the only person we've got who can talk and think and empathize with these clients. He's gotta be on the front line. But all that stuff in the back end of processing invoices and all that other stuff that we don't need Jay's brain for, that's what the automation's gonna do. Yeah. Then Jay's not gonna be tired. Jay's gonna show up at work and be incredibly good with his clients, which he's very good at doing, right? Mm -hmm. And then Jay's gonna be able to look into the future and come up with solutions. Meanwhile, the robot's doing what the robot's supposed to do. And I'm oversimplifying it, but that no, is- That's a great analogy. And that's exactly how I think about it. And that's exactly how I explain it to our clients too. And it's funny because a lot of times people are surprised to hear someone like myself say that because I think- prospects usually expect me to say, let's automate everything, more money for us. But right. no, that's not the right answer. It's not going to be a successful project. And uh, we want successful projects and right. we want to empower our clients to, to deliver more value to the world. And so 
automating things that you shouldn't automate is going backwards. And partly that's because you're there. You personally are invested in the whole solution. You're right. invested in the client's success, right? If you were only invested in what's the sales number and then right. you could walk away, as hard as you would try not to do this, you would start to just become focused on the sales number. But instead, you're like, wait a minute, I want my company to have a good reputation. I like these client relationships. We've been working with these people for years. The last thing in the world I want to do is push something on them they don't need, right? So in your mind, you've already sorted out that. But mm -hmm. it's also is because your incentives, fortunately, are not out of whack, which is good. Yeah, any anyone who doesn't necessarily feel as obligated to their clients as, as perhaps some other people do, it's still in their financial best interest because you have your reputation to worry about. Sure. And even if you don't get a bad reputation, they're not going to be raving fans who recommend you to other clients, and they're probably not going to come back and be repeat clients. And anyone in business knows it's expensive to get new clients. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's just long term, there's so much more benefit to everyone. Again, everyone wins when you do do business that way. I was recently involved in a private equity deal where private equity is, to, to your listeners on the phone, very wealthy people pool money into a private equity fund. That private equity fund invests in business and their goal is to make the business make more money and then sell it. That's their goal. The problem with that is if a private equity company has a window of two years or three years, They'll do everything they can possibly do to make money in three years, sacrificing the future, but everything they can do to make money in three years mm -hmm. and then walk away. So incentives, I really think incentives, you got to look at the incentives across the board. Who has impact on this project and how do we avoid short-term thinking or ego, my sales bonus versus your sales? Yeah. I'm, you know what? I'm going to, it's funny that you say that because it makes so much sense, but I think it's something that people don't think of enough because it's sometimes it's hard to understand the motivations of another person until you, until you look at it through their lens and you understand that their motivations aren't necessarily exactly like yours, which is why they think differently. They act differently. And I think that's, it's just a fantastic piece of advice and a reminder that you shared with us. So thanks for bringing that up. I think you and I have uh, crossed paths virtually many times on some of these projects, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we may have. <laughs> That's funny. What kind of, let me ask you a big picture question. You can take it wherever you'd like. What kind of trends do you see going on right now? What kind of trends do you foresee happening in the, the technology and AI in, being implemented into the world at large? What effects, big picture, do you think it's having right now? And, and where do you see it going in the next just next couple of years, because I will say this, like, and I, I use the analogy of like cloud technologies, the cloud was this big new thing 15 years ago or so, and it completely sucked and <laughs> no one used right. it because it wasn't very good. And the hype right. was, it was all hype. And then it started getting really good and it started getting better and people started using it. And then it got really good. And now almost everything is in the cloud. Sure. And, and that took quite a long time. That took like 10, 15 years or so. AI is going to be like two years, three years, in my opinion. It's going to be so I, fast. It's um, interesting. I don't, as parts of it, I think will be, and we could talk about what those parts are. Hmm. I do think that if you start to look at the hype wave and now with social media, with the incredibly fragmented news world, everyone wants to get clicks on their site. And the best way to get clicks is through fear or through extreme predictions, right? Either extreme, you could be a billionaire. Or you could lose your job. Those will both mm -hmm. get clicked, Click right? Bait. 
Yeah, total clickbait and clickbait around this specific topic. So I do think I'm with you. I agree that this technology is going to move faster than I'm glad you use clouds. A great example. I remember that the, the cloud hype wave and everyone thought it was all going to happen. So I think it is going to move faster. But I also think in the years, here's one of the things I think it's going to be a, a big limiter. What we're all realizing with AI right now in some applications of AI is what AI can't tell you is what the truth is. It can tell you what the machine model, machine learning model or the large language model came up with, but it can't tell you what's true. Yeah. And then it can't tell you what's ethical either. So if you go into chat GPT and say, show me, instead of the Mona Lisa being the Mona Lisa, make the Mona Lisa Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever, you can get that, right? You can get a picture mm -hmm. of Donald Trump or Joe Biden as the Mona Lisa. You can also type in and say, give me 10 questions for a podcast guest on intelligent automation, and it'll give you a list of questions. Right. But what it won't necessarily give you is good questions. You're yeah. going to have to look closely and say, I better not ask question number nine, because that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a really important distinction for people to understand. Like right now, there is no such thing as AI. It doesn't exist, and it probably won't exist for quite a while. But what we do have is we have enormous data models, enormous sets of data that software can scrape and recognize patterns right. and learn a lot from and give us reports and answers based on that and a lot of kind of machine learning, but it's a lot different than AI. And I, I said that in the, I wrote a section, I had to be very careful about this in my book because you start going into pages and pages of technology descriptions you run the risk of no one reading it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, my publisher, I had like a 45-page section, a chapter on technology, and my publisher said, I think we need to cut this back. So I had to summarize things. So general AI, I completely agree with you. There is no machine smarter than a human being right now. It can think, feel, it, it doesn't exist. And it may never, we've been talking about this for 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. But there's some great large language models that can pull together this stuff with the, with what we call AI, right? And I, I think you're going to see, let's just say, for example, there's 100 journalists in the world. They can all go into chat GPT and say, write me a story about the floods in Libya that took place in September of 2023, which there were huge floods in Libya this last week, right? And it'll do it. It'll write you a story. But it, it'll get to a point where I think a lot of that AI-generated stuff will either be so same, so boring that you're still going to get to the Pareto rule where there's going to be a certain number of places with great content or a certain number of places with good stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the masses will go to the repeat stuff. So I don't think we know yet, but I think if you combine AI with the intelligent automation tools and you have good leadership and can really use this stuff, you can produce amazing organizations. Mm -hmm. You can deliver unbelievable value. Yeah. But you got to do it. Of course, this is my whole whole reason and for I, being I think, is to help people I, do that. Yeah, let me know if, if, if I'm reading this correctly. I also see between the lines there of what you just said that technology being used with the human element is way better than technology by itself. Oh, totally. One of my biggest joys is to go into organizations and stimulate the thought around this via some kind of a keynote speech or whatever. And one of the examples I use in the slides, of course, are great for this. Most people have seen the first Star Wars movie, not everybody, but most people have seen the first Star Wars movie. And there's a scene 
So I would say, so what do I mean by helping humans be heroes and robots be robots? There's the scene where they get stuck in the trash compactor, right? They're the princess and Luke and Han and, and Chewie are all stuck in the trash compactor. Now they're heroic, they're bold, they're smart, they're motivated, and yet they're stuck in the damn trash compactor, right? And how do they get out of the trash compactor? Lightsaber doesn't work, guns don't work. All the stuff that they had, their own little human world didn't work. They reach out and they get the robot who figures out how to shut down all of the trash compactors on the Death Star, right? So they get out of the trash compactor and then they go back to being heroic. That's the metaphor I think we all need to think about. How can we have these machines, this software, help us be more human, be more bold, be more adventurous, be less bored, do things that are exciting, right? But you have to have the technology. So don't you can't dismiss the person who wrote R2-D2's code, right? That was really important to get that code written. And it was also really important to go blasting your way through the through the ship. So it's a partnership between technology and heroic people. And that's, I think, the future. If we can get more of that, the, the world it becomes a better place. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way to look at it and an important discussion too, right? Because we want to optimize that balance for everyone. Yeah, and I think if leaders are more confident and this is important. Leaders, too, are on these heroes' journeys, right? A leader is embracing this for the first time. Think about the first time a leader has to be the person who's on the steering committee who owns the new implementation of $2 million worth of technology and consulting. That's scary. If I blow this, yeah. there's $2 million we just threw in the trash can. And of course, in big companies, I was involved in a project that was a $100 million IT implementation project when I worked at General Electric, and it completely blew up. It was ugly. But because GE was such a solid company, they could figure out how to work through it. But so there's a lot of, even the leader can be a hero, but the leader's got to look at it that way as well. It's a change in perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's a good point. And yeah, I was also on a, a pretty big some big projects when I was in, in corporate too. So there's a lot of moving pieces, right? It's a lot different than the work I do now. We, we're in the small business world now, which has different challenges, but they're both challenges that you can think about ahead of time, back to incentives and planning and understanding the balance between humans and technology. And yeah, it's an exciting time that we live in really, I think. I think it couldn't be more exciting from my perspective. Now, maybe the Industrial Revolution was pretty amazing as well, but it moved a lot slower. It right. took 40 years for significant things to happen. <laughs> now right. it's taking four days. Now we're just moving ones and zeros across a wire at the speed of light. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I, I think we have to accept that there's going to be some hype, and that's fine. Journalists need to make their money. And we need to not be the Luddite or Luddite. I never remember how to pronounce that. Luddite, I guess, the person who hates technology. I think that's the way it's said. I've never heard yeah. it. <laughs> that's because you're in technology. <laughs> but you got to balance this out. And I think more than anything else, and what I try to, the message I try to bring across is there is adventure here. There is growth. There is excitement. There is growing your ability to think, learn, interact, solve problems, Embrace that instead of, I'm terrified, I don't understand the technology. And we have to help employees get that way. Right. And there's also a lot of opportunity. Them. Huge, absolutely huge opportunity. I couldn't right. be more excited about that. Yeah. What's the number one most important thing you think um, that listeners should take away from this talk and what you've learned along the way and uh, maybe one of the most important points that maybe you put into your book? 
I think the fifth chapter of my book or the fifth section of my book talks about helping humans be heroes. And that is what I think is the most unique insight that I bring to this subject is to say, just get over technology and change. No, it's a completely different look. This is an adventure. It is going to be scary. You are going to stretch. You are going to be worried. You're going to fight Darth Vader or whoever, right? The Matrix. You're going to fight somebody. You're going to fight Voldemort and Harry Potter. But that's all part of the hero's adventure. And this technology, when you get to the other end, it may not be exactly perfect what you wanted, but it's going to be much better than what you had. So I would say embrace the adventure, embrace the hero's journey, help your employees see this as a hero's journey. And I think that will accelerate as my own personal experience with clients, with these ideas, it accelerates the way people move forward. Yeah, I I love the way you look at it. And I think that's the way we have to look at it because the technology is coming either way. Right. And, and I think that what, the way that you look at it is absolutely true, too, because technology empowers us as humans to do more, to do better, or to do worse and bad things, too. But it's your choice. Use it to empower yourself and empower others and empower the world. Yeah, a lot of opportunity, and, and we'll see where it goes. Very exciting stuff. Do you have any final thoughts? Do you maybe a piece of advice you would give to other entrepreneurs? Maybe something in the technology realm that's practical for them to think about maybe an implementation or? I I would say if you're the technologist doing the technology, the the technologists tend to be excited about the technology if they can, right? If they're allowed to go and and try new things, they tend to do it. There's nothing worse than a technologist who's told to work on 30-year-old technology. They hate that, right? (laughs) Nobody wants to do that. (laughs) They want to work on the new thing. So it's less about that. I think what I would say to the technologist is, Try to help your leaders, and I don't mean the technology leaders, but the business leaders, see the potential and try not to to make them feel dumb, that they don't understand it. And for the business people, try to get the technology people to really understand the business problems you're trying to solve. And when those two things come together successfully, and sometimes we talk to, I happen to have a computer science background, so I, I wrote my code in earlier days, et cetera. So I, I feel to some degree I, I can walk those two sides, but I'm more of a business person now than I'm a technologist. But those two people, that's absolutely essential. So if your technologists try to talk in business terms, help them see what these tools can do. Don't push technology for technology's sake. And if you're a business person, try to understand almost every technologist you're ever going to meet is going to want to do something great. Try to help them get that great thing done. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I it always makes me feel bad because I'm talking to prospects and, and business owners and they usually say something along the lines of, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to technology or something because they, of course, I'm a technology guy and they don't want to feel silly or, or foolish. And I always, it makes me feel bad because I don't want them to feel dumb just because I do this all day, every day, all day long, and they don't doesn't make them dumb. And I say, don't be silly more about your business than I'm ever going to know. And I know more about te- technology than you're ever going to know. What if we put our brains together a little bit? You just right? hit on, I mean, think how many times you've heard someone say, a disparaging thing about another function in the company. So let me give you a few examples. Oh, the damn salespeople, they're all lightweights. They don't right. know what they're talking about. 
Oh, the tech guys, they don't know what's going on in the, the business. All they do is crappy leads. Yeah. yeah exactly, right? The <laughs> finance people, all those people ever do is crunch nerves. HR, oh, HR, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> and because of that, it, that kind of attitude, and this really comes from a position of insecurity. If you're mocking the technology team, there's a big part of that is you don't understand what they do. And you don't, you're instead of being humble and saying, this is an incredibly valuable part of my team, or the opposite is the same way, right? You can say, oh, the CEO just sits in the corner office on the phone all day. Something tells me they do a little bit more than that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so a yeah. little deferential uh, humility and understanding the other roles probably leads to Yeah, be a little empathetic. And I love talking to, to people that obviously there's very few people who are engulfed in technology as much as I am, but I don't want them to feel stupid or less intelligent. And so I always tell them, you know, that's not how this works. We both have our strengths and we need to put those together to have the ultimate best outcome by working together. And that's how things work. And it's, they always feel quite relieved and relaxed. I feel this release of tension and they're like, oh, okay, cool. I can deal with that. That's a great, <laughs> that's, and you obviously are a very confident person. You come across as a very confident person. I'm sure other people feel that. That's the other thing. When you feel, so, when you see somebody feeling worried or not too confident, you're dealing with a person who's very concerned and you're not going to get the best out of somebody who's feeling like that. So how do you try to make, have them recognize what they are able to do? And then you'll start to see more of what a person can bring forward. Again, right. another, that's another part of my book, but anyway. Yeah, no, that's a, that's awesome. You really put a lot of fantastic different topics that are related in, into that book. It's a very, it's a very different kind of book. I appreciate that. I think it's, it's meant it's short. It's about 150 pages long. A lot of stories that directly relate to the things we're talking about. And I can say, I was about to say, I think, but that makes it sound like I don't know. And I do. When yeah. you use these tools and use these approaches, you will get good results. There are other tools. There are other approaches, but I can guarantee you that focusing on it from a noble point of view yeah. is a very good start. Well, I love that your book has a lot of real world case studies, because I think we can learn so much from them. And I love the fact that your approach to, to implementing technology is people and human friendly. And, and I think that's fantastic. Chris, how, what kind of clients uh, do you normally work with and how do they contact you? I have two kinds of client. The way they contact me, the best way to just send me an email or go to my website is Noble Automation Now. And Noble is spelled N-O-B-L-E, not Nobel like the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so it's right. Noble, no -E. <laughs> I, I hope most people know that, but just- Oh, I get case. a few of those. I, somebody will ask me that. Noble Automation Now or Chris at Noble Automation Now. The clients I work with are two, two different groups. One, I give a lot of keynote addresses, speeches to groups full of people and really try to inspire a positive perspective on these subjects. And I think everyone can relate to wanting to be on a hero's journey and learn something new and stretch themselves. And then the clients that I work with in consulting are companies who are implementing these tools and technologies. And that ranges across industries, pharmaceutical businesses, financial services, retail businesses, online retailers. I'm trying not to name any names of companies, but people who want to implement these technologies and, and people who feel like if they don't get this right, they might lose some of their best talent. And they yeah. might not get so the you're, most you're the out type of, of person that they would want to talk to in the very early stages. Yeah, or halfway through when they realize their technology. <laughs> That's probably not the best plan, but okay. So if you're in deep trouble, get a hold of Chris. But if yeah. you haven't gone that uh, far. Hopefully I help you earlier on. And the way I help is you get the leaders in the organization 
to this is a new sort of skill set for them, right? How and it's not completely new, but if you emphasize these things, they will be more effective. They need to be the heroes. The mm-hmm. people who my clients have to be the heroes. That's the only way. Maybe I get to play Obi Wan once in a while, but they get to be the heroes. Yeah, you're going to walk them through that whole process so that they can have a successful implementation of the technology and have that intertwined with their workforce in a nice, smooth process. So that it's a big success and everyone has an ROI and everybody wins. And at uh, the end of that, we say yay. Yes. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we go out for we go out for a happy hour, right? So we go for happy hour, yeah. right? And yeah, so that's nobleautomationnow.com. There's information about your speaking here, consulting, coaching, and you've got a contact button all the way at the top of the page. Easy to find. Get a hold of Chris. He is going to help you implement technology in your company in the proper way so you can avoid all the disasters that could otherwise happen. Chris, thanks so much for your time on the show today. It was great having you. Jay, it was my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the time.